Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to make their presentation. And this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include unconditional surrender, restraint in American foreign policy, and removing the blind spots in your personal relationships. Our first speaker will be Kenneth Pyle, who is a professor emeritus in history at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Ken is the author of the book, Japan in the American Century. Today, Ken will discuss FDR's catastrophic decision demanding Japan's unconditional surrender instead of allowing for a negotiated peace. Our second speaker will be Barry Posen, who is the Ford International Professor of Political Science at MIT. Barry is the author of the book, Restraint, A New Foundation for U.S. Grand Strategy. Barry will explain why he wants to reduce America's military footprint and focus on defending the commons. He will also explain why the consensus grand strategy of liberal hegemony is misplaced because it leads us into unnecessary entanglements and wars. Our final speaker is Gary Lewandowski, who is a professor of psychology at Monmouth University, who will discuss his book, Stronger Than You Think, The Ten Blind Spots That Undermine Your Relationship and How to See Past Them. Gary will discuss ways to improve your marriage, your relationships, choosing a partner, and when to break up. During the live call, please feel free to email me questions at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. I would like to introduce our next guest, Ken Pyle, who is Professor Emeritus in History at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and he is the author of the book, Japan and the American Century. Ken, go ahead. My book is about the impact that we Americans have had on Japan. Uh, in my judgment, no country has been more impacted by America's rise to world power than Japan. So I would like to highlight uh, three controversial points about the war in the Pacific, uh, and all three are related. First, the main reason for the huge impact we had on Japan is the way we mistakenly chose to fight the war in the Pacific. Franklin Roosevelt declared that the war against the fascists, Germany, Italy, and Japan, would be fought to unconditional surrender. It's the only war in American history fought to unconditional surrender. All other wars, we've had a lot of them, were fought to uh, negotiated peace. Our diplomats were told not to negotiate, not to discuss conditions for ending the conflict, so compromise and diplomacy were uh, ruled out from the beginning. Instead, Roosevelt announced that our war goals were uh, to demand from Japan surrender of its, uh, of its uh, sovereignty, uh, to occupy Japan, dissolve its empire, permanently disarm it, carry out war crimes trials, democratize its political, economic, and social institutions, and re-educate its people. Well, not surprisingly, such sweeping goals did not result in unconditional surrender on the part of the Japanese who feared the execution of their emperor, the abolition of the imperial institution, and the end of their way of life as they had always known it. 
so the mistake, in my judgment, was to rule out diplomacy. The possibility of a negotiated peace with Japan existed, which might well have avoided the protracted war and also Stalin's last-minute entry into the war, which gave Russia a foothold in the Far East. So Hitler and Nazism defied compromise solutions, but with Japan, compromises were possible. We know that because once the war was over and we occupied Japan, we began uh, to make a succession of major compromises right away with our wartime goals. It was ironic that after insisting on unconditional surrender, uh, the Americans decided to keep the emperor, keep the conservative bureaucracy, leave high levels of concentration of capital, that is the Zaibatsu, uh, and restore the pre-war conservative elite, and then most ironic of all, prod the Japanese to rearm. Second key point in the book is that this totally unprecedented, unconditional surrender policy made the use of the atomic bomb almost inevitable. Since we wouldn't negotiate, that meant our military was given charge of war strategy. An American strategy became maximum force with maximum speed. When the B-29s came within uh, range of Japan, in 1944, we then firebombed 60 Japanese cities, deliberately targeting civilians to break Japanese morale. There were upwards of half a million civilian casualties. Just in one night bombing Tokyo, 100,000 people died. In his memoirs, General Curtis LeMay, who commanded the bombing campaigns, summed up the strategy in stark terms, bomb and burn them until they quit. So Japan refused to surrender, mobilized the entire nation for a last stand, which meant invasion of Japan would be necessary at a huge cost of casualties to us. When the atomic bomb became available, there was no doubt that we would use it. Unconditional surrender policy had made the use of the atomic bomb almost inevitable. A third uh, and final key point that I want to make about the book is that we have mistakenly convinced ourselves that the occupation of Japan under General MacArthur was such a great success that it became a model for subsequent interventions in other countries and nation-building. The seven-year occupation of Japan turned out to be the most extensive reconstruction of a nation in modern history. The problem is that we denied the Japanese the right to reform themselves according to their own culture and traditions and history. Instead, we imposed our institutions and values on Japanese politics, education, economics, and society. We wrote their constitution and imposed it, along with our education system, uh, along with equal rights for women. If democracy is to work, it must be in the lifeblood, the experience, the history of a people. But we believed our institutions and values were universal, good for every people, 
regardless of their history and culture. Our occupation of Japan, unfortunately, became the model and inspiration for all subsequent American interventions and nation-building efforts. For example, President George W. Bush often cited success in democratizing Japan as demonstrating our ability to do the same when we invaded Iraq. He said that many, many times. By some uh, estimates, we have conducted as many as 30 major interventions in the last century. We believed we could nation-build, our, our values were universal, never mind the history and culture of other countries, so we could remake them. In the wake of the unhappy outcomes of recent uh, quixotic interventions, including Iraq and most recently Afghanistan, Americans are beginning to become disillusioned with such nation-building and efforts to remake other countries in our own image. Ken, thank you. That was terrific. I want to start our conversation just before the war. What were the Japanese thinking when they attacked Pearl Harbor? Was this instigated by Roosevelt's policies? Um, specifically, I'm thinking about the embargo on oil and other critical commodities. What provoked the Japanese attack? Well, we had been in negotiation with the Japanese for uh, about half a year before Pearl Harbor. And what we were trying to achieve was uh, Japanese withdrawal from the, from the continent. And in, in the last uh, phase of the negotiations, Secretary of State Hull uh, uh, sent a message. Uh, we won't uh, end the uh, embargo on all these critical materials, including oil, unless you withdraw from China. Tojo, who had become prime minister, turned to Admiral Yamamoto, who had this scheme of, of a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. One interesting development that's become clearer recently is that uh, Harry Dexter White, who was uh, uh, undersecretary of Treasury uh, and, and a Soviet uh, sympathizer and spy, actually, uh, had... Uh, written an early draft of what became the Hull Note. And so uh, there was a basic miscalculation by both the Japanese and the Americans, and that led to the war. How do you explain the Japanese behavior of fighting to the last man in some battles with the Americans and the decision to use suicidal kamikaze pilots to destroy American warships? From way back in the Meiji period in the late 19th century, the Japanese military had been taught that that surrender was a lack of loyalty to the emperor. And then during the war, uh, Japan was faced fighting against a country that was ten times its power. And they always believed that what their last card was Japanese spirit as opposed to the Yankees' technology a Japanese spirit would overcome uh, the uh, the invader. After the bombings of Tokyo and Hiroshima, was the Japanese public enraged, and did they think that the Americans had gone too far with their incendiary and atomic bombings of civilians? Did the Japanese view these bombings as an illegitimate form of warfare, or did the Japanese consider the fact that they drew first blood at Pearl Harbor 
as an appropriate justification for the American response? The Japanese uh, were outraged, but um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the details of the uh, atomic bomb were kept from the Japanese population by the occupation. Did not really demonize the Americans for for the use of the atomic bomb, uh, but they uh, became uh, convinced that uh, they had been unique victims of a new weapon. But um, the American occupation uh, uh, and the new relationship with Americans after surrender uh, helped to diffuse some of the hatred that people felt for the use of the bomb. I did a book club a few years back with uh, Reverend Wilson Miss Campbell of Notre Dame. He wrote a book defending the American decision to drop the bomb at Hiroshima. Ms. Campbell reviewed uh, Truman's decision-making process. No one in Truman's circle thought that we shouldn't drop the bomb, and there was a strong belief that a million American soldiers would likely die to invade the uh, Japanese islands. Do you agree with Reverend Ms. Campbell's historical interpretation? I know the book well, uh, and uh, that's a common uh, that's the common view of Americans that defend the decision that uh, it saved a million American lives. Uh, historians that have studied this carefully uh, can find no uh, can find no confirmation of how that of how that uh, number makes any sense. The truth is we don't know how many casualties because we don't know how long the war would have gone on. Uh, in my opinion, uh, the unconditional surrender policy of Roosevelt created the conditions in which, when we were faced with a massive buildup for the invasion, and the Japanese uh, sent three million men in the army down to Kyushu to uh, uh, to handle the invasion. So Truman was uh, was uh, as a result of unconditional surrender was faced with a terrible dilemma. And just at that point, the Manhattan Project came to a conclusion. We had an atomic bomb, and so we used it. But in my judgment, we could have undertaken diplomacy to, to negotiate a peaceful end uh, to the war. Uh, how that would have worked out, we can't be sure, because it's a counterfactual. But in my judgment, it was the unconditional surrender policy which, which made that decision inevitable. Core to your thesis was the foolishness of the unconditional surrender proclamation by FDR. I want to ask questions first on the U.S. side and then on the Japanese. In America, we have a Congress, there's a State Department, and public intellectuals who could have said the unconditional surrender demand was a bad idea. Why didn't uh, these people come to the fore? And Roosevelt died in 1944. Why doesn't Truman and other members of the State Department and other foreign policy experts challenge the unconditional surrender proclamation? From the Japanese perspective, why didn't Japan publicly announce a willingness to negotiate? This would have reopened the issue for allied public debate. How do you explain both the American and Japanese policies relating to this bungled unconditional demand for surrender? So the State Department was ex 
exceedingly weak uh, during the Second World War. Roosevelt uh, neglected them, uh, often didn't even bring them along to major conferences. And then Truman came in, weak and, well, inexperienced and uh, with the weight of the of the world on his shoulders and uh, was pledged to follow Roosevelt's uh, legacy. And uh, in his first speech to Congress, he announced right away, our policy will continue to be unconditional surrender. And at that, the, the entire chamber uh, joint meeting of Congress, they all rose to their feet. So public opinion uh, by uh, the time of Truman was overwhelmingly uh, uh, in favor of unconditional surrender. Gallup poll uh, in early, uh, well, in the early summer of 1945 found nine to one in favor of unconditional surrender, even if it meant an invasion. Uh, there were uh, realists within Truman's advisors who said we're, we're going to be, be crazy to invade Japan. We should try to negotiate. But the new Secretary of State, James Burns, persuaded Truman that uh, changing unconditional surrender, he would be politically crucified if he did that. And Burns had great influence over, uh, over uh, the president. So on the Japanese side, why didn't the Japanese uh, just come out and say, uh, let's negotiate? Well, um, they that was their, their strategy from early in the war was if we can win one big battle and make it so bloody and, and costly to the Americans, uh, we can we can bring them to uh, negotiate. And they had the they had the uh, precedent in their most previous war, which was the Russo-Japanese War, of winning a great sea battle uh, in the Japan Sea against the Russian uh, fleet, and that had led the Russians then to negotiate. They were taken back uh, when Roosevelt's sweeping war goals were made to them, and fearful that that their whole way of life was going to be changed by any kind of surrender policy. And in the last year of the war, with the emperor's approval, they set out to have one great decisive battle. Uh, and they, they believed that that would uh, force the Americans to negotiate. And in the pre-atomic uh, era, that strategy might well have worked because uh, uh, Truman was faced with this terrible dilemma of uh, the casualties that w that an invasion would cost and whether the American people would be willing to continue a protracted war. In your opening remarks, you highlighted that force-feeding a constitution to a people is not the way to create institutions or democracy. Yet, uh, the Japanese seem to have adopted and willingly accepted these institutions. Why do you believe that the American methods for creating democracy in Japan was flawed? Democracy is not is something that has to be achieved. Democracy has to be in the lifeblood of, of a people and its history. Um, and uh, uh, 
we have polls now that show that uh, while MacArthur was having the Americans draft a constitution in the space of six days, there uh, there were uh, polls uh, taken that showed the Japanese people wanted to have a a constitutional convention. They wanted to uh, uh, revise the Meiji Constitution of 1889. Um, And so we took that opportunity for the Japanese to reform themselves away from them. Why did Japan succeed? Uh, Well, uh, Japan became a democracy, in my judgment, not because MacArthur uh, imposed it, but, uh, well, over the next decades, uh, Japanese people, uh, uh, through civic activism, uh, held the conservative elite, which we put back in power, to uh, accountability in all kinds of ways. There were massive demonstrations in the 1950s against the alliance and American bases. Uh, in the 1970s, when I first went to Japan, they, there were uh, massive uh, public demonstrations and civic activism against the, the uh, pollution that uh, high growth was, was causing and the health problems. Uh, in the 1990s, there was uh, civic activism that held the Japanese government for its failure to deal with the Kobe earthquake. And then most dramatically, the uh, triple disaster of the earthquake and the tsunami and the uh, explosion of the uh, nuclear reactor has led to another massive uh, civic activist pushback against the conservative elite. Over the period of of decades, uh, Japan has forced the conservative elite, the the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, uh, to accountability. And uh, they have become very sensitive uh, to uh, public opinion. That's one reason why the prime minister has just announced his resignation yesterday, because of his uh, pushback against his handling of the... uh, of the pandemic. Let's talk about Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. Why have the Japanese people so embraced Article 9? Article 9 uh, says that the Japanese people renounce war as a sovereign right and that they will not have land, sea, and air forces. And that was MacArthur's instruction to the Americans who drafted the Constitution. But it can also be traced back to Franklin Roosevelt's uh, policy of disarming Japan. The Japanese people loved Article 9, uh, particularly in the 1950s. Uh, It gave them a reason uh, not to have to participate in the Cold War. Vice President Nixon said, we made a big mistake with Article 9. Now we want you to uh, rearm and be our ally in the Cold War. The Japanese very cleverly and cynically uh, used Article 9 uh, to say, I'm sorry, uh, we have this uh, wonderful article in our Constitution. And uh, by the way, you Americans wrote it for us. And we simply, uh, we can't uh, rearm. We have this uh, Constitution which doesn't... uh, doesn't allow us to do that. With the rise of China, uh, Japan has uh, begun to belatedly to uh, take greater uh, uh, 
uh, responsibility for its own security. But the unconditional surrender policy, uh, we so weakened Japan uh, that uh, the remnants of that uh, policy are with us uh, today. Under Prime Minister Abe, uh, they began participating in collective defense. And just most recently, in the last few months, uh, quite an important development, the Japanese have said that have really tied the future of Taiwan to uh, Japan's own security. So that that neglect of their own uh, self-defense uh, is uh, beginning to change, but Article 9 remains on the books, and a large portion of the Japanese population uh, favors the continuation of that policy. As you just mentioned, China has been seeking greater ambitions uh, in the South China Sea, and this has encouraged Japan to create a military coalition known as the Quad, uh, which includes India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. The primary objective of the Quad is to limit Chinese military power and to defend Taiwan. What do you make of uh, Japan's role in the Quad? The uh, Quad was an idea of Prime Minister Abe during his first term. Uh, It was no accident that uh, Biden invited uh, Prime Minister Suga as as his first uh, uh, foreign guest because the alliance with Japan is now critical uh, to our defense of of China and also for, for pushing back against the Chinese encroachment on in the South China Sea and and the pressure they're putting on Taiwan now in their in almost daily uh, flights over and around uh, the islands. U.S.-Japanese relations appear to be very strong and continue to get stronger. Is there anything to be concerned about? Well, we have to maintain the credibility of the alliance. For example, the Japanese have... Uh, worried about a nuclear war. Would we trade Los Angeles for a Japanese city? Uh, And when Trump talked about why are we defending Japan, that made the Japanese very nervous. And so the Japanese have the option any time to go nuclear if they lose faith in the American alliance and its willingness to, to defend Japan. Of course, as long as we have 50,000 troops uh, on bases in Japan, that serves as a tripwire to assure our commitment to Japan. If we pulled back, the Japanese would, would almost certainly go nuclear and would probably cut some kind of deal with China. Let's move to North Korea as our next topic. When I was living in Japan in 1998, North Korea fired an unarmed missile over the Sea of Japan, and it self-destructed not far from Japanese territory. Now, this really upset the Japanese public, and it led to front-page news stories seemingly for years. Another topic in Japan was the discovery that North Korea had used small submarines to kidnap lovers on Japanese beaches in the 1950s and 1960s. The purported purpose was to learn from the kidnapping victims about Japanese culture to assist them if there was ever a war between North Korea and Japan. 
Uh, more recently, there was a negotiation uh, between North Korea and Japan related to these kidnapped victims uh, and their return to Japan, but it was complicated when the North Koreans would not allow the Japanese victims to return to Japan uh, with their children for fear that they would not return to Korea afterwards. And this negotiation created a firestorm. My question is, are Japanese-North Korean relations particularly hostile now, and do you expect these relations to continue hostile indefinitely? You, you raise the two important points the Japanese have. The, the belief that there are still Japanese citizens who were kidnapped and brought back to North Korea, that they're still there, and that issue has to be solved to Japan's satisfaction before they can really open any kind of relations with the North and, of course, the nuclear threat and the, and the missiles. And so the commitment to the alliance with the U.S. is, is cr of critical importance. You mentioned the, the role of having American troops um, at bases in Japan and in, in Okinawa. But there are costs and consequences of having troops on Japanese soil. How do you think about whether or not we should maintain those bases from both the Japanese and the American side? The bases in Okinawa in particular are absolutely critical to the future uh, of the balance of power in East Asia. And there can be no question about uh, giving up those bases. And the, um, the very sad thing is that the people of Okinawa uh, bear this tremendous burden of having the bases, 75% of the American military personnel on their island, largely because other parts of Japan have said, not in my backyard. We had Angela Stent, who's at Georgetown, speak about um, Russia's relations with its neighbors. And one of our discussions related to the Kuril Islands, which uh, are Japanese islands that were annexed by Russia at the end of World War II. Over time, the Russians have sat down with the Japanese with the potential to uh, return the Kuril Islands to, to Japan, but they never seem to get around to it. Um, and Putin it doesn't appear to have any uh, inclination to do so. How do you explain um, the Russian reticence? Uh, Japan and, and Russia have never signed a peace treaty ending World War II. The Japanese will never forget that Stalin came into the war at the very last minute, two days after uh, Hiroshima. The Japanese uh, believe the southern Kurils are their own islands, but Putin is not going to ever give up those islands, uh, in my judgment. You're uh, considered one of the great uh, historians uh, of U.S.-Japanese uh, relations there doesn't seem to be a tremendous academic interest from the United States in Japan. The focus is overwhelmingly now on our relations with China. China has a more uh, open, universal kind of outlook on the world, which appeals to Americans, whereas Japan is a very tightly knit country. There are a lot of younger scholars studying Japan today. But the vogue is more Japanese study of gender relations and society and so on. I'm somewhat worried about the younger generation not going into the field of international history and uh, diplomatic and military history.
I end each session with uh, a note of optimism. What, what are you optimistic about as it relates to U.S.-Japanese relations? I'm cautiously optimistic that after our misadventures in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, that we may finally have learned the lesson that history and culture count. Japan, the occupation mistakenly came to be a, a model for interventions in other countries. But I'm consciously optimistic now that uh, we've learned our lesson. Uh, and I like to I like to quote uh, a uh, an address that John Quincy Adams gave an Independence Day address in 1821, and he said that America has abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when conflict has been uh, for principles to which she clings. And then this famous phrase of uh, of his. She goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. In other words, the U.S. would not use military force to intervene abroad. Uh, in the 19th century, we believed that we should be a model. We were going to be, uh, as the Puritan ideal, uh, the city on a hill. I'm consciously optimistic that we will make our nation a model for the world and, and encourage other nations to follow us, but not intervene militarily as we have done so often in the past century. All right, I would like to bring uh, Barry Posen into the conversation. Uh, Barry, um, what were your thoughts on uh, some of the arguments that Ken gave? Well, um, you know, it's it's hard, especially given the arguments that I make, to disagree with um, his invocation of uh, the need of the United States to understand better the history and, and cultures of others and to be much more modest about uh, its ability uh, to um, impose uh, a you know form of government which we can call liberal democracy on others who have not found their way to it themselves. Um, uh, and it's particularly difficult, I guess, I think, uh, to be the bearer of democracy at the point of a bayonet without arousing those nationalistic kinds of impulses that will cause you know, the, the people we come to visit to reject it. So I, I, I'm sympathetic to all that. Uh, and I'm also sympathetic, as I've heard it many times, to the you know you know the observation that uh, American presidents like to invoke uh, the example of the of the Japanese occupation or the German occupation as a kind of an indicator that if we work hard enough and stay long enough, um, we can somehow you know create the kind of country we want. And you know they get away with this in part because uh, Americans don't know much history and the success in these two countries was was conditioned on many many different variables i, I wonder maybe if if ken might like to talk a little bit more about the variables that affected the u.s occupation that may have you know assisted success variables that are very very hard to recreate i wonder if he has any view on that I think your mute button might still be on. 
Yes, I uh, I didn't mention in response to uh, Larry's question uh, uh, a number of the other variables. Uh, perhaps most important was uh, that uh, pre-war Japan, especially pre-1930s Japan, had uh, a great deal of experience with constitutional government. Uh, it didn't have popular sovereignty in the in the uh, Meiji Constitution of uh, 1889, but uh, uh, it did have a two-party system, and uh, in the 1920s, the leader of the majority party in the upper house, in the lower house of the of the parliament, uh, became prime minister. So, the roots of 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 a Japanese form of democracy were quite strong uh, in the pre-war period. And uh, Japan had that to uh, to draw on uh, if they had been given an opportunity to uh, to reform themselves. And uh, the fact that the military by the end of the war had been totally discredited, if you think of the of the firebombing and all of the uh, civilian suffering. The military had been totally discredited and uh, and would have been inevitably pushed aside in in the post in a Japanese form of uh, reform. And I think we could have uh, compelled Japan to reform uh, quite easily because by the uh, last year of the war, the Japanese Navy was uh, was uh, uh, totally defeated, and uh, uh, we could have uh, sanctioned Japan uh, uh, without uh, without reforming it ourselves. We could have sanctioned Japan because they were in desperate need of of uh, trade and aid and and uh, investment and technology and uh, Japan's great uh, weakness, of course, is that it has no resources of its own. So, with a negotiated peace, we could have uh, we could have made sure that Japan uh, carried out reforms itself. Barry, um, I want to ask you a, a, some, a question related to some of of Ken's comments. Um, in particular, there was a discussion about whether or not we should remove our troops. Uh, from Okinawa and substantially reduce the U.S. presence, uh, military presence in Japan currently. Um, Ken, Ken thought that if we did that, uh, Japan might go nuclear or, or cut a deal with China. Um, I guess my question for you, Barry, is twofold. One, uh, do you think Japan would go nuclear? And if so, how, what, is that a big problem? And second, do you think that that would result in a side deal with China, or do you think it will result in a more effective containment of Chinese military ambitions as we work together as two partners instead of one uh, subordinate to the other? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I don't think many people doubt the material capacity of Japan to become a nuclear weapon state in short order. And I don't think many political analysts doubt that there is a sizable strain of Japanese foreign policy elite um, 
opinion that would support such a policy. So I think that were the United States to disconnect itself militarily from Japan entirely, I think it's quite likely that Japan would become a nuclear weapons state. That said, if the United States were to disconnect, to disconnect itself from Japan militarily entirely, um, you know, capitulation to China is another possibility. We don't know what the outlines of you know, such a capitulation would be. You know, people often use the model of Finland, which was a rather small country on Russia's border that had fought the Russians to nearly to a standstill um, uh, in, uh, in, in two wars. Uh, before succumbing to superior, you know, numbers, uh, the Finns made a deal with Russia after the war, and that was to not, you know, not get in the way of Russia's foreign and security policy, so long as they didn't have to cooperate with Russia's foreign and security policy, and as long as they were left to have their own liberal democracy internally, right? So that's a version of Finlandization, but we cannot know what you know kinds of arrangements Japan could make with China, what kinds of arrangements China would. Would accept, but uh, it, it's true when you live next door to a bumptious great power. Uh, if you're not prepared to defend yourself, when you don't have a strong ally, you're likely to uh, to appease. So we can't really know in advance which of these well, Japanese yeah, strategies but, is most likely. I consider nuclearization to be most likely, but I can't tell you that that's what's going to happen. Yet, uh, in your book, you recommended that we disengage our troops from Japan and try to encourage them to defend themselves and sort of be an equal partner in the quad to uh, to limit uh, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. What would you recommend U.S. policy be now um, with Japan in the, in the context of China and the quad? Well, I, you know, I, I'm going to cop a plea here because, uh, you know, there's what I might like to do in my, you know, in – in the in the notional architecture that I can you know can generate versus what I I think might be a practical kind of reform, uh, both point in the same direction, but one goes farther than the other. So I, I think that the present security relationship with Japan is just awful. Uh, I think the Japanese underinvest in defense, and what they do invest, they invest um, poorly. Um, and I think this puts an enormous onus on us to provide not only conventional fighting power, but to be willing to reach for the nuclear weapon potentially early in a conflict, or at least to do things that would raise the nuclear risk. So I don't like the way the alliance currently works. I don't like, because the way I interpret it is that, you know, the U.S. agrees to defend Japan and Japan agrees to help. Uh, that's not an alliance that I believe is sustainable, uh, especially given the growth of Chinese power. We need an alliance where you know Japan and the United States, each for their own national security reasons, contribute meaningful amounts of military power uh, to the problem of of, of securing the the Pacific, right? And there are a number of ways to get there. Uh, one is to is for the Americans to be very forthright and activist in bringing about a change, and in part to make that change credible, I think the Americans should um, put some limits on what they do. Right? I, I don't think the Americans should be afraid to withdraw some troops from some parts of Japan. 
Uh, personally, I'm sort of surprised at Ken's attitude towards Okinawa, not because Okinawa is, a, is not an important and useful military base, but because every American military person on Okinawa is not essential to Okinawa's utility. And this is especially true of the Marines, especially true of the Marine base at Futenma. This, I mean, at, 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 uh, I'm sorry, the, the Marine Air Base and the Futenma replacement facility. At Anoko, these are these are mistakes. I mean, this is a way of poisoning U.S.-Japan relationship, the poisoning alliance, and it achieves nothing militarily. The Marines just don't have a particularly important role in the defense of the first island chain. That role is an air and naval role. So this is a freebie, uh, and I think it might both make the Okinawans a little happier and make the Japanese understand that American forces could come and American forces could go, and that we expect to see more cooperation. Right. So uh, th that's what I would do inside the present grand strategy of the United States of America. Even if we want to maintain this commitment, I think we need to change the way it works. Now, beyond that, I would like to move to a world where other countries were responsible for their own defense. But this is a much bigger conversation about how we arrange what I would think would be the inevitable nuclearization of Japan under that, those circumstances. And how do you manage that without also causing the Chinese to make big, bold moves? So in the first instance, I believe that we have to reform the present situation. And then we could think about something bigger, if that makes sense. Um, Barry, I... Do you want to go with your original six-minute presentation, and then we'll go for more questions about you? I'm happy to do that. Let's go. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, I'm speaking from my book, Restraint, uh, and Restraint is not just a book title. It's what people call the grand strategy that I recommend. And the title tells all, to achieve American national security, the United States should be moderate in its ends and choose moderate means to achieve those ends. Now, to do this, I think you have to define security rather narrowly, spin out a plan to achieve a limited set of goals, and see how you feel about it. Particularly, do you feel safe, and do you still see lots of inexpensive ways to make yourself safer? Now, one reason I developed the grand strategy of restraint, and I stand on the shoulders of people who were ahead of me on this, is to give critics and doubters of the post-Cold War U.S. course of action a grand strategy, to a place to sit, a perch, to critique the grand strategy that I think we've had, which, can, you know, which, which Larry mentioned is, is, is some have called liberal hegemony. Now, I define security as safety, sovereignty, territorial integrity, and a power position sufficient to comfortably defend all these three. Grand strategy is the outline of a plan to achieve security, a political military means ends chain, and a set of real political and military priorities arrayed to achieve those objectives. It's not a cookbook, it's a set of guidelines. Now, restraint is a grand strategy, at least for me, focuses on a limited set of security goals. Three are of concern to me. One is a classical goal, which is the US, as it did in World War II and during the Cold War, should oppose the creation of empires at either end of Europe, which might assemble enough power to conceivably threaten the U.S. This is a very hard thing to do, but it's not inconceivable. Now, in Europe, Russia is presently too weak, and the Europeans are, in my view, too strong for hegemony to be a risk. So I don't think there's much the United States really needs to keep doing there, and that's where I've devoted a lot of my attention recently. The other end of the world, China, is much strong, is stronger and getting even stronger. So U.S. help in Asia is probably needed. The question, as we were discussing earlier, is how much and what kind? 
and restraint advocates, and as I said, there's many of us, are working through the question of what a restraint policy in Asia looks like, but we are not there yet. I'm going to be honest with you, we are not there yet. We don't have a fully worked out way to approach this problem. Second interest is to be vigilant against unusually ambitious non-state actors who choose violent means. We've just had the 9-11 20-year anniversary, and it's a good reminder of this problem. The devil here is in the details of exercising this vigilance. Occupying other countries militarily is probably not the best way. Then third, we have to think about the risk of nuclear weapons and the risks they pose, and I'm particularly interested in the the problem of nuclear weapons falling into the hands of non-state actors. States have a return address. You can deter states. You may not be able to deter non-state actors. Now, the U.S. has the luxury of focusing on a limited set of threats and a few goals because it is inherently a very secure country for economic, geographical, and even technological reasons. Now, in contrast, the U.S. should abandon the grand strategy of the last 30 years, which I call liberal hegemony. And there the title also tells all. The premise of that strategy is the U.S. should be the strongest state in the world by a considerable margin. And the U.S. should aim to transform other states so they look more like us. This strategy is encompassed in the famous Washington phrase, the U.S.-led liberal world order. Now, my view is that liberal hegemony has more or less failed, and it has failed for fundamental reasons that cannot be overcome by more military power or more foreign aid or cleverer diplomacy. There's a bunch of reasons. One, other powers also want security, and they compete to get it. Russia and China are the noteworthy great or great-ish powers, Iran a middle power. It has been ever thus. The very old international relations theory called realism predicts that other states want security as well. They don't just trust other great powers, even ones as nice as the United States. Second, U.S. allies are also self-interested actors because the U.S. offers them extravagant security guarantees. They under-contribute to the common defense, which raises U.S. costs and risks. I call this cheap riding. Some also act with more boldness or carelessness than is reasonable because they trust in the U.S. insurance policy. This I call reckless driving. Another problem, as Ken talked about, is that nationalism is a strong force in the world. Even a benevolent liberal U.S. offering good advice will often have its advice rejected if we bring that advice at the point of a gun. Iraq and Afghanistan are object lessons. Another problem is that there has been a diffusion of military power in the world associated with the processes of globalization and modernization. And this translates into more military capability for more actors, and this has simply made the waging of war more difficult and costly than it was, and it has made sustained military competition with other great powers even more demanding. It's not easy to compete with a country that has a GDP that's more or less the same as yours, which is where we are with China. War itself, which has been a choice instrument for the United States in the last 30 years, is a blunt and costly instrument. It's not a scalpel, but members of the foreign policy establishment seem to believe that threats of war are often effective, and if we have to make good on our threats, it will be easy to win. I think the record shows otherwise. There's a long list of potential wars implied by the commitments that the current U.S. foreign policy establishment would like to make. Commitments regarding Iran, commitments regarding North Korea, Syria, Ukraine, Taiwan, these all involve the possibility of war. Now, by comparison, Iraq and Afghanistan, which were relatively limited counterinsurgencies, in sum, cost at least $2 trillion to achieve not much actual success. Any of these other wars that are presently in the mix could cost a great deal more, and several of these potential wars would risk nuclear escalation. 
Now, at this point, I see only two paths to change. One is the United States can continue this liberal hegemony strategy until we finally run into a crisis that really hurts and forces sudden retrenchment, something much worse than Afghanistan or Iraq. Now, this could be ugly in part because many states may not be ready to look after themselves if they haven't been warned. And other states, challengers, may see sudden windows of opportunity. I'm a small-c conservative when it comes to diplomacy. I don't like sudden movements in international politics. The other way the Americans could proceed, which I think is more reasonable, is to embark on serious reforms. The grand strategy of restraint would secure key U.S. interests at lower costs and risk by limiting our aims and being careful with our means, especially military means. Finally, I should note that restraint does not preclude cooperation with others to deal with problems of inherent common concern, which no nation state can truly address on its own, such as climate change or pandemics. Indeed, it might make such cooperation easier by lowering the temperature, lowering the number of competitive international security relationships, which have a habit of becoming all-consuming and zero-sum, which right now, sadly, is the direction of our relation with China. World politics is entering a new phase because the U.S. is no longer the sole great power in the world. It may also be true that economic resources within the United States available for national security will become more scarce because there's more claimants for those resources. Certainly, the resource of public political support is becoming more scarce. In my view, U.S. political leaders must choose their foreign policy objectives more carefully, manage resources more scrupulously, and threaten employ and employ military force less frequently, and the grand strategy of restraint points the way. Thanks, Bear. Um, let's start out with uh, liberal he hegemony uh, theory. What? Um, why did it come to dominate uh, diplomatic circles for so long? Um, and wh why are why are its leaders still defending it as the appropriate U.S. strategy, given the record? Well, I wish I had an answer that satisfied me to your question, and. I, I don't have an answer that satisfies myself. I think it's a confluence of two things, maybe three things at the end of the Cold War. Um, one is, given the way the Soviet Union came apart, we, had, we did have a sudden movement in international politics. And what we had long thought was a bipolar world, basically dominated by two great powers, to what was essentially a unipolar world where you know, if you ordered powers, you know, the United States was not just number one, there were like missing slots for powers two, three, and four. And you didn't, you know, the, the rest of the countries in the world were just not very capable then. And that kind of power advantage is really heady wine, right? Um, second is where and how the Cold War ended, which is the, you know, the Cold War ended with the Americans out there in the world. It ended with a frontier, right? And that frontier was well extended. And on the frontiers of empires, especially where there's power vacuums, there's a tendency to keep trying to pacify the frontier. Third is the ideological, you know, elements to the Cold War is basically the liberals against whatever you want to call it, reactionaries, totalitarians, autocrats, whatever term you, you want to use, right? And the Cold War seemed to vindicate the superiority of our system. So we took it as a moment to basically do something that has had a long tradition in American thinking about international politics, which is transform international politics 
once and for all. And this is why the American elite moved from trying to take what was a successful, largely but not entirely liberal capitalist anti-Soviet coalition and grow that into a liberal capitalist U.S.-led world order. Right. But just because I can say those things and spell out the history and talk about the big causes doesn't mean I'm really that confident in my in my assessment of why it turned out the way it did. Uh, uh, Barry, uh, this is Ken. I've uh, just finished reading a book that's getting a lot of attention among China scholars. It's written by uh, Rush Doshi, who is uh, Biden's uh, advisor on China on the NSC, National Security Council. I saw the review. I didn't read the book. Go ahead. It's uh, called The Long Game, and its uh, subtitle is China's Grand Strategy to Displace American Order. And uh, as I was reading it and knowing that uh, I had this uh, session coming up with you, I was surprised to find he, uh, he refers to you uh, as uh, someone who might uh, uh, favor uh, an accommodation with China of some sort. He says something to the effect that even Barry Posen doesn't favor a uh, maximalist uh, grand bargain with China, as though you might uh, support uh, some other kind of accommodation. So I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering how you feel about uh, uh, a policy of restraint uh, applying to China today. Uh, you've uh, just said that you uh, see the control of the Eurasian continent as critical to our security. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm wondering how you, uh, how you feel about China uh, today. Well, as a card-carrying realist, I can't help but be um, can't help but notice the, the the vast increase in Chinese economic power and the concomitant increase in its military power in the last twenty years, right? And that makes China a candidate for regional hegemony in Asia. I have not read Russia's book. I've seen a review. Um, the Chinese might, in their more excited moments, imagine Chinese world hegemony. But uh, if they do, it means they haven't looked at a map and they haven't done their sums, right? So I don't think that's in the cards. Now, the question of what the relationship between China and the United States and the other Asian powers would be, I think that is in the cards. Uh, I think that is up for competition, but also up for negotiation. Now, unlike Rush, I'm not confident I understand exactly what China wants in Asia. Um, I think that, like most great powers in the first instance, it would like a world where American military power is not entirely at its throat. And, you know, there's an old cartoon from the 60s that features of a metal American general pointing at a map and saying, Mr. President, our defense problems would be much easier if people stopped building their countries near our bases, right? And that's because our bases are everywhere, 
Right? Now, the United States needs some bases in Asia to be able to assist countries there in defending themselves and to be able to defend whatever interests we have. Right? But at the same time, I think the United States should think very carefully about military deployments that have the dual effect of making the Chinese think we're getting ready to come after them. And this is a very hard line to walk, but I think it's a walk, it's a line that we, we, we need to think about. And if we look at the way the U.S. military tends to do its military planning, the way they think about war is to go for the throat. It's not so different than the strategy you describe against the Japanese, right, in, in World War II. So these are things that, you know, we have to work with, right? And as far as, you know, shared leadership of, you know, global politics, again, I'm not even really sure I know what this means, but I think on some issues, it's, it's kind of inevitable that we have to co cooperate with China. So if we accept the inevitability of cooperation with them on some issues, maybe we better accept that we're going to be cooperating with them. I mean, as far as I can tell, everyone's crisis of the moment is is climate change, and it's going to it's a tough problem to solve, and it can't be solved unless the most advanced industrial states in the world cooperate. The United States and China have to cooperate to address this problem, right? And it seems to me we're going the other way, which is we're taking one issue space after another, whether it's military, whether it's diplomatic, whether it's economic, whether it's technological, and we and they are turning them into zero-sum issues. And after we've done that and sustained that, I think it's going to be very hard to deal with this other issue, which is pressing and which you know, our Western publics want us to address. Right? So as I said earlier, I'm a little bit humble about my ability to prescribe a strategy, you know, grand strategy for Asia, but I, I think the direction in which we're going right um is 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 quite disturbing and i think requires a lot more a lot more thought before we embark upon it the uh issue that is really drawing critical attention and uh i've heard the last 3 uh uh paycom commanders talk about this uh just recently is uh, Taiwan. Um, in your book, you uh, say events are moving China's way, and this may not be the place to make a stand. Uh, so uh, Taiwan is uh, is the critical issue at the moment, uh, I think. And uh, I wonder how you how you uh, how you feel about that. Well. In a perfect world, the United States would have gotten out of its, you know, the, the commitment we have to Taiwan is a weird one because, you know, for all the historical reasons that you know, right, it doesn't have that NATO quality to it. There are no American forces on Taiwan because we, we agreed with the Chinese a long time ago that, that we weren't going to organize things that way. And we did it, we did it for a, a reason. Um, so if it were up to me, we'd have, we'd have shaken loose of the, the commitment 10, 15 years ago, right, when, when we were strong. Um, you know, we, we would have basically said, you know, Taiwan has to stand on its own two feet. Uh, and we would have, you know, made the point that, uh, uh, you know, both Taiwan and China agreed that there was one China. And it's time for the Taiwanese to start working that out with the Chinese. Unfortunately, it's kind of too late for that. Uh, um, so the question is, what's what's the next best thing? And I, I think we need to get and, and, you know, I'm quite critical of the American military because it's w really willing to kind of ring the warning klaxon without talking about the you know, possible military solutions. On the one hand, I think Taiwan is a, is a country that, or, or I'll call it a country, but it's an island that's, that's easy, 
easy to defend. I think China would find it very, very hard to conquer Taiwan. And there's many things that the Taiwanese can do to make itself hard to conquer. And there's many things that the Americans could do that aren't particularly offensive. I mean that in a tactical military sense to help the Taiwanese defend themselves. But here is the problem, right? We do not have the military capability to end a China-Taiwan-US war on our terms. For all the reasons you discussed relative to Japan, in other words, things that have to, I, arguments that have to do with the, the power of Chinese nationalism, right, uh, and the the sheer size of the Chinese state and its military power, the United States is not going to get China to unconditionally surrender Taiwan to an independent status through something that we're going to be able to do militarily. And if we try, it's going to be a military horror show that's going to run serious risks of nuclear escalation. Right? So I think that a war over Taiwan, where Taiwan and the United States could initially be successful tactically, still cannot end without a negotiated solution. Right? In other words, just as you recommended negotiation for the past war with Japan, I believe that we will have to consider negotiation with China about Taiwan. And I think if we get through the initial stages of a war without major escalation to the use of nuclear weapons or something else, um, a lot of voices are going to suddenly start asking about negotiation. I don't think Taiwan wants an endless war in the region. I don't think Japan will want an endless war in the region. I don't really think we'll want an endless war in the region, right? So we're going to we're going to end up thinking about a negotiated solution. And in that negotiated solution, it's not going to be the Chinese who give more. It's going to end up being Taiwan. Now, if we can see that far ahead, if I'm right, we can see that far ahead, then we probably better start considering that negotiation now, not later, because maybe we could avoid the war altogether. Just following that up a little bit, um, you know, you described the, this this war as just being between Taiwan, China, and the U.S., but there's also India, Japan, and Australia, and what they want and what what their fears of greater Chinese ambitions are. How do you think, you know, the whole point of of your book is combining with allies, but when you have allies and you're not running the show, it's more complicated uh, and more nuanced with these additional players. What, what, are the other, what do these other players want, and how will that change the dynamics of this uh, dispute? Well, it's pretty clear what, what the countries in Asia actually want. What they want to do is be able to trade with China and make a ton of money out of that trade and, feel, and simultaneously feel, feel militarily secure. And if there's a war, the trade goes away. And because of the, the risks associated with combat throughout Asia, uh, be, feeling secure also goes away, right? And I presume what they would like is the war to be ended in a way that restores the possibilities of, of trade and also makes them feel more secure, right? And it's, you know, if you don't end the war early, uh, it's going to be very hard to restore trade. And if you don't end the war before people, before it's become really, really ferocious, 
I think it's going to be pretty hard to restore a sense of security. So I'm recommending a kind of warfare here that people haven't ra- waged in a long time. It's the kind of war that used to be waged in the 18th century, right? Sometimes in the 19th century, but certainly not the 20th, right? It's limited war, right? Um, and I'd rather not have the war altogether, right? Now, you know, what role would Japan play in this war? I, I think Japan would certainly try and defend itself if the Chinese chose to expand the field of battle. Uh, would the Japanese be enthusiastic participants if the Chinese had left them alone? I'm actually quite doubtful that they would be. There's nothing in the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty that re- requires them to be in that, in that war. And they certainly don't have a security treaty with Taiwan that requires them to be in that war. They can talk a good game now, but uh, that's easy, right? Uh, the real question is, you know, what are you going to bring to the table, right? I think the Australians will... You know, they would certainly defend the you know, sea lanes in the Pacific if the Chinese want to come out and try and harass them. But is, are the Australians really going to want to be in the war? Hard to say. Uh, they've been quite willing cooperators in the war in Afghanistan, so they fought in Vietnam. Maybe they would, right? So I think you're right to bring up the possibility that different countries have different interests. Right? India also does. You know, India would prefer that China not successfully expand by the sword, right? But is India willing to uh, to have the war spread to the uh, you know to, to its entire land boundary with with China um, over the question of whether Taiwan becomes independent or not? Uh, I, I think we shouldn't assume these things. Assuming that all these countries are going to line up and see their interest in in having a war to the knife with China. I don't think that's that's going to be their interest. And I think if the Americans are going to end up leading this coalition, which they probably would because they're going to be the greatest power, uh, they have to consider war aims in a way that, that keeps everybody on side. And I don't think, in contrast to World War II, where unconditional surrender was a way to keep everyone on side, especially the Soviets, I'm not sure it's going to be a good way to keep everyone on side if, if tragically, we end up having this war uh, with China over Taiwan. Um. John Lewis Gaddis wrote this book, Strategies of Containment, and one of the important aspects was this concept of asymmetric response. Um, the way you kind of described a Chinese aggression against Taiwan would suggest that um, the whole essence of the battle be referenced around securing and defending Taiwan, but it's a big world, and you opened up with the conversation about the Indian-Chinese border as just one other element. Um, China has a lot to defend. Um, it needs it needs to receive resources just like the Japanese did uh, before World War II. Um, it can't defend uh, its sea lanes, particularly outside of the South China Sea. Uh, it has it has a lot to lose. Uh, it probably can't that's, defend that, very that's well. That's absolutely true. It does have a lot to lose. So how should we, if you were recommending uh, a military action against the Chinese, assuming the Taiwanese, uh, China and Taiwan came to battle, uh, would you recommend that the action be taken in the South China Sea to limit the war, or would you take on China somewhere else? Um, well, again, I mean, we're, you know, this conversation, I mean, it's hard to fix the pattern of the war, um, you know, in a conversation this brief. But uh, my view is that um, the 
if the if the United States is going to fight this war, it should try and fight it carefully. And the Chinese have many debilities going into um, a war of this kind, and those debilities can can put a lot of pressure on China. I don't think they can they can cause China to give up its objectives in Taiwan, but I think they can impose costs in a way that gives us a little bit of control over escalation. So I think your the observation you made is 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 the right one, uh, and that is that um, should this war occur, and should the Americans be in this war, the Americans are going to make it pretty much impossible for China to import or export by the sea. Command of the sea is something that I would say the United States, at least in the open oceans, still enjoys. Uh, if you, in my book, I recommend the United States, you know, continue to invest heavily in maintaining that command. And because of the way the geography around China works, they are highly constrained in their access to the sea. So I don't believe the United States has to go into the South China Sea to exert this pressure on China. We just have to control the exits, and I think we can do that. Um, and once we control the exits and the entrance, no Chinese ships are sailing in or out, and there's going to be no exports and there's going to be no imports. And this has the effect of forcing China back on dependency on trade with its um, with its land partners. And it really, in a weird way, um, puts them, you know, in the hands of the Russians. And though the, the Chinese and the Russians are quite friendly right now, uh, I don't think this is a friendship born of love. It's born of interest and detestation of the United States and the potential, the, the fact that we're usually pushing, we, we're pushing both of them all the time, right? So uh, I'm not sure this is going to be a, a happy and comfortable situation. I don't think the Russians in any sense or perfect substitute for the massive import-export trade that China currently sustains, right? So I think this is a very high cost, and I think this is a an economically an economical way to put military pressure on China. Any military pressure is going to be escalatory. There's no way to fight a war without a risk of escalation. But I think this is a much more sensible way to apply pressure than you know, some of the earlier ideas of the American military, which was to you know launch air raids deep into China to try and attack China's nuclear forces with conventional bombs in the hopes of changing the nuclear balance, putting the Chinese nuclear deterrent at risk, you know, bombing, trying to chase, you know, I'm sure they've never said this, but in the event, I'm sure they would try and chase Chinese regime leaders, and put their lives at risk. I mean, this is the way the United States military used to like to think about fighting. I think they're starting to think better of it because I think China's just getting too strong, but but there is this tendency in American strategy to operate this way. This is the way we plan to operate against the Soviet Union. And I don't think it's necessary in the first instance against China, because I think they do have the vulnerability that you described. Uh, Barry, this is Ken again. Uh, as I read you, uh, the essence of uh, the opposite of liberal hegemony is a kind of balance of power system. And That's correct. Hmm? That's and, correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things, one of the obstacles democracies have is, uh, is, uh, is appreciating 
diplomacy, and I saw that in the case of a, of, uh, of Japan in the Second World War, as I as I mentioned. Uh, so uh, the balance of power basically works only through accommodation, and uh, the job of diplomats is to reach accommodation through persuasion and compromise, and that's very hard to do in a democracy. And so, for example, when you say we should uh, we should negotiate with China over uh, a, uh, a solution to Taiwan, uh, I guess my I'm very skeptical reading American public opinion today that uh, any political leader uh, could uh, could undertake that in the face of uh, of the kind of uh, public opinion uh, that exists today. I think that's right, but one thing's for sure, they won't do it if no one tells them to. Right. In other words, as I said, I, I wrote this book so not, not because I thought policymakers were going to have a eureka moment and say, ah, yes, we'll do what Posen says or his friends say. Um, I wrote it so that critics of the present course of action would have a place to stand and a place to start. Right? And one element of that place to stand and place to start is to acknowledge that there are other great powers in the world and that when there are other great powers in the world, there are only so many choices. Right? And to lay out what those choices are so that Americans know that when they eschew diplomacy, when they eschew compromise, when they insist that the purpose of negotiation is for us to tell other people how to how things are going to be and then for them to sign on the dotted line, right? That that has costs, right? And if American people in their wisdom are willing to pay those costs, then who am I to stop them, right? But they need to understand what those costs are and they need to understand there's another way to proceed and then they can ask themselves how they feel about that. Right. Um, you might, I don't make Asia my principal bailiwick as an area studies person. I, I, I concentrate mostly in Europe, uh, but uh, in Asia, uh, you know the you know the 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 U.S. détente with China involved a hard bitten realist named Richard Nixon, who at one time had been a very severe cold warrior and an ideologue um, uh, making a deal with China because we wanted China's help in addressing the Soviet Union at a time when we thought our power was not up to the task. And when we cut that deal was when that's when the Americans agreed along with Taiwan and along with China that there's one China, that Taiwan's not an independent country. We, we, we don't have that agreement with China. And every time we do something that challenges that agreement with China, we are going back on an arrangement we made. You know, Taylor Fravel, whose work I'm sure you know, is a colleague of mine. And, you know, I read his first book to say, you know, one thing the Chinese are really neurologic about is when people sit in any place where they have a, uh, a disagreement with another with other countries about real estate, they may live with that disagreement for quite a long time, but they won't let it go backwards in the other side's favor. They may not insist that it moves forward in their favor, although lately they have been, 
but they sure get neuralgic when it starts moving the other way. And partly because of Taiwan's adventurous diplomacy and partly because of the encouragement of various factions in the United States, uh, it's starting to look to China like we're going backwards. And that's not to say that the Chinese are angels. They're not. Um, they are also getting restless. So this is a very, you know, we're entering a very touchy period. And it would be really good if people stopped to think, right? Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm a realist. I would like to re return to a world where people thought in terms of balance of power, where diplomacy, which is not only about talk, but also about mutual understandings of the risk of war in the background, right? led to some sort of compromise or accommodation. But right now, neither we nor the Chinese are in that kind of a mood. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to just say, well, if they're not in the mood, then I give up. Uh, let's have the war. Uh, I want to remind people that that war is not pretty. No, uh, maybe this is a, okay. maybe this is a good time to end on a, on a note of optimism. Um, <laughs> Barry, what are you optimistic about uh, specifically about uh, restraint as a policy? Well, uh, I'm not by nature a wildly optimistic person. Uh, I've been that. Uh, what, one thing I'm optimistic about is that um, this strategy, and, and again, you know, I basically switched my former views on strategy to, to these views, you know, because I was persuaded by colleagues. So I'm not the first person to make this argument. But when I first got into making this argument, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I was kind of the, you know, the the petulant child that was invited to the party because you kind of couldn't leave them out, right? Uh, so I'd go to meetings of all my liberal hegemony friends, and they would give me five minutes to state my point, and then they'd move on. Well, the, the debate has moved on now, right? The restraint is getting entrenched in the, the Washington debate, and a pluralist liberal democracy can't have a honest discussion of foreign policy if it's controlled basically by one elite and one idea. And that's the way things were up until about 10 or 15 years ago. All right, so that's change and that's good. Um, second, that on a particular issue in which, you know, horse sense and reason needed to be applied, uh, the president of the United States, President Joe Biden, made a, a, a courageous decision to to abandon a losing proposition in Afghanistan, right? Um, he did it for his own reasons, not because he was pushed domestically, but 60 or 70% of the American people have believed in this policy. They believed in it before he launched the disengagement, and they believed in it during the disengagement. They may be unhappy about the video that accompanied the disengagement. They may wish that it was prettier and perhaps had Biden had even more wisdom and more cooperation for the American military, it could have been prettier. It wasn't pretty. But even given its unprettiness, the American people and their wisdom still support the action of their president. Right. And this tells me that the American people are are ready for restraint. So this is what gives me optimism. Barry, thank you. Ken, thank you as well. Um, that ends our discussion about foreign policy, and now we turn to something completely different. I'd like to introduce our next guest, 
Dr. Gary Lewandowski, who is a professor of psychology at Monmouth University. He's also the author of Stronger Than You Think, The 10 Blind Spots That Undermine Your Relationship and How to See Past Them. Gary, why don't you begin? Thank you. So everyone deserves a great relationship. Have you found yours? Though that may seem like an easy question, it's deceptively difficult to know for sure if your relationship is truly great. But that's the nature of relationships, isn't it? There's always a bit of uncertainty. Early on, we all have our doubts. Does this person like me? Am I really in love? Then we can second-guess ourselves later on. Are they really the one? Is this relationship right for me? Eventually, we wonder, am I settling? Can my relationship be better? Even what am I doing wrong? Tough questions to answer, but all fair to ask. Though we may know what we want, it's surprisingly difficult to be sure about what we have. When thinking about whether to stay with your current partner or whether to break up, what factors might you consider? Well, when researchers asked participants this question, participants gave 27 reasons to stay, as well as 23 reasons to leave. Now, here's the really confusing part, though. Most of those same participants were inclined to stay. Inertia is a powerful thing. But those exact same people who were going to stay also reported that they have an above-average inclination to leave. They're conflicted. Although... It's clear from this research that doubts are common. It doesn't mean that they're harmless. A different study of 464 recently married spouses revealed that in two-thirds of couples, at least one person had doubts about the relationship before they got married. When women were the ones that had more doubts, it was linked to a higher divorce rate down the road. That was even after controlling for a bunch of other really important factors like their current satisfaction, whether the parents were divorced, and personality factors. Clearly, doubts can be a relationship killer. On one hand, we all, rightfully, want the great relationship we deserve and don't want to settle. On the other hand, we don't want to be overly critical of our partner and lose something truly great. It's hard to sort out. If you truly want to make your relationship decisions better, you need better data. I open my book with this quote from Anais Nin. Quote, love never dies a natural death. It dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors. End quote. Many of those errors are self-inflicted. Resulting blindness makes it hard to see our relationship clearly. We don't know how to replenish our love because we're guilty of leaving too much of our relationship's faith to chance. It's odd because this isn't how we approach most other things. Most of us have taken classes to become a better parent, a better at yoga, to be better at golf. We seek expertise to handle our finances, to decorate our home, or to select the best college for our kids. We also do lots of research. But for our relationship, what do we typically do? Nothing. How often do we consult with experts? Never. Do we read up on the science of relationships? not even a little bit. Yet, we all intuitively know that relationships are important, and yet we're still negligent. I mean, can you think of any other area of your life where you have so much riding on one decision, on one person, more than your relationship? We need to do better. Your future happiness depends on it. Here are a few blind spots you likely don't realize that you have. First, we're overly romantic. Yet, love isn't really even enough for relationship success, and when we focus on love, we focus on the wrong kind. Soulmates are more mystical than magical, and believing in them does more harm than good. We give commitment way too much credit. Again, we're also not selfish enough. There's more room for I and me in the we and us of our relationship. We often give our partner too much support, which can backfire, and the support we give is often misguided. Any relationship also isn't as bad as we think, and it can actually be quite beneficial. You need to be smarter about your relationships because relationships are important, Time is short and mistakes are costly. Everyone deserves a great relationship. What is one hour, one day, one week, one month, or one lifetime of your fulfillment worth? 
As you seek greater fulfillment, follow your heart, but again, take some science with you. When you do, you may just find that your relationship is stronger than you think. I want to start with a conversation about divorce. Um, what do you think causes it? Um, it seems like in the in your book you suggest that uh, many breakups are for the better. How should one evaluate uh, that decision, and how do you think about kids as part of that process? You know, the research shows that when people consider divorce, they consider that decision for many, many years. What eventually causes divorce uh, were problems that were there from the very beginning. And so it's important for people early in their relationship to really take stock of the issues that they face and make sure that those aren't going to come back uh, to bite them later in the future. Um, kids are certainly, you know, one of those big relationship investments. Investments are those things you put in a relationship that you can't easily um, get out of um, or, or get back if, if you lose the relationship. The parents deal with divorce well. And, it, you know, it's mutual. It's respectful. You know, they, they willingly embrace co-parenting. Um, there's not a lot of arguing and strife. Um, divorce isn't as problematic for children. Um, because you can use the, that experience to model uh, having high standards, you know, looking for the best for yourself. I mean, there's there's some positives that can come out of that too. Um, but certainly, most often the case is that people, you know, divorces aren't as amicable as we would like them to be, and so that when when kids see that from their parents, that can be very problematic. Uh, I have a 19 and 21 year old uh, kids. What uh, what advice would you give me to give them uh, as they begin their relationships? And the best piece of advice I give to college-age students um, is make sure your partner is your best friend. You know, we expect them to be kind and respectful and always there for us um, and to treat us well. And we need to make sure that we're holding our romantic partners to those same standards. Um, the other really useful part of using this lens is it helps you emphasize the right kind of love. Typically, we spend too much time focusing on passionate love. Passionate love is that, you know, your heart's going pitter-patter and that nervousness. It's the attraction, the heat um, of a relationship. But the other kind of love is that kind of best friend love. It's, it's that, you know, I really enjoy being with you as a, as a person. You know, I like you. I like spending time with you. I, I find you funny. You're a great person to talk to. You know, that passion, as much as it's exciting to fall in love, that passion eventually fades. And if we place too much of an emphasis on the passion, we're constantly going to feel like we're falling out of love. Whereas if you put the emphasis on companionate love, um, your, your love is only going to grow and improve over time. I got married in my early 30s, um, but plenty of people get married in their mid-20s. And my parents got married uh, when they were 20. Um, if you're 20, you're still, you're developing. You People do grow. People do change. How should we think about change uh, and individual growth in, a, in terms of relationships? And how, what are the extra risks you take when you get married young? I think the risk is, you know, at 20, you're less sure about who you are as a person than you, than you would be when you're 30. Um, similarly, if you're marrying, if you're a 20-year-old marrying another 20-year-old, your partner's in the same boat, right? That They don't know themselves as well as, they're going to in another 10 years. And so if you have two people who don't know themselves as well, um, you're just heightening the degree of difficulty for 
the likelihood that you're both going to grow in similar and desirable, mutually beneficial ways over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, it becomes a little bit easier, you know, once you're in your 30s and, and, and 40s, you're more of a fully formed certain person. Right? You're, not, you're not trying to figure it all out, right? And, and you, sh you need to choose wisely. Um, and that probably is a much more precarious choice when you're making that choice at 20 and 30. By 30, you've done a lot of that development on your own and probably, you know, your partner's influence isn't nearly as great. Um, but when you're, the earlier you get married, and it, it's not as much early as you understand about who you are, um, the more you're going to necessarily rely on your partner. We had uh, the Princeton mom, Susan Patton, on our show uh, a couple months ago. She wrote a book called Mary Smart Advice for Finding the One. And what she recommended uh, to women in particular was marrying uh, young men uh, that they meet in college or soon thereafter, that women are at their top of their game uh, in terms of attractiveness and can uh, find a, a choose a better mate, one that's smart and successful. How do you feel about recommendations to encourage women to marry younger um, and also to try to find their partner uh, in college or among a, a very bright cohort at work? What I could get on board with is finding a partner in college is helpful because it's like a big dating pool that where everyone there has been pre-selected to be similar to you on lots of different traits. Um, and, and so I, I say this to students a lot where it's like you never in your life are you going to be around so many other people that are similar in age, similar in interest, similar in, in life, you know, stage and, and those types of things. And so, you know, that's, it's helpful in that regard. The problem it goes back to something we just mentioned a, a few minutes ago is, you know, how well is your self-developed when you're in college, right? You know, if you're particularly meaning first year versus your senior year, I mean, that those are vast differences. I mean, it, you know, how much students figure out who they are during college is profound. Um, so, you know, insisting that you find your partner in college and saying that that's going to be superior to other ways, I, I think that's a pretty risky bet. I also think that the one aspect of something you mentioned in there was this idea that, you know, women are at their physical peak and that's going to help them attract a better partner. No one should want to attract their partner based entirely on their physical looks, right? Because if you're relying on your partner to like you for how you look, you're asking them to like you based on something that inevitably over time is likely to decline. Um, you want your partner to love you and respect you for who you are and the, the kind of person you are and how you treat other people and, you know, all those types of qualities and characteristics that are only going to age with grace and, and get better over time and, and not be so superficial about it. In your opening remarks, um, you mentioned that we do a lot of work to improve our golf game, uh, but we don't work on relationships nearly as much. Another comment that Susan Patton had on our program was that you know a lot of women really focus on their career development, uh, but they don't spend as, as much effort uh, on seeking a partner or on maintaining and improving their relationships. How, what sort of emphasis should we place on finding our spouse? Uh, how much time should we place on working on our relationships, and how do we compare that with uh, working on our education and career development in comparison? 
Do you want to think of, you know, some of the key areas of your life going forward and where your happiness and well-being and fulfillment are going to come from? And so, you know, that's a big reason why people choose wisely in many cases to focus a lot on their careers. But you can make all the same arguments for your relationship. And so it's certainly an area that you have to pay attention to. I think you're going to find better relationships when you're not necessarily looking for them um, because you might be trying too hard. I think the best thing for people to do in terms of finding a relationship is really, you know, foster that sense of self-understanding, like become comfortable with who you are as a person, really focus on your self-development, be comfortable being alone so that when you're in a relationship, it's because you want it, not because you need it. Be really confident and comfortable with who you are. um, And the relationship, the good relationships will find you. Um, And, you know, it doesn't mean you can't go looking for relationships, but to the extent that you're clear and confident about who you are as a person, you're going to be less willing to tolerate bad partners. So too often people are willing to stay in bad relationships because they think any relationship is better than no relationship, and that, that certainly isn't the case. We had a special episode on Internet dating. The opportunities are unbelievable. How do you think about choice internet dating, and how it affects uh, short-term and long-term relationships? Um, you know, one of the really big positives, if people use them well, is you have a lot more information about people up front, right? So if you go back to my earlier advice or suggestion about making your partner your best friend, your best friend is somebody who ha- shares a lot of the same interests. So if you use a dating app wisely, you have so much information that you can really tailor your potential partner to be much more like you. Um, you know, it's the, the choice and the number of choices can also lead to some really bad behavior. You can, you know, start adopting this, you know, relationship shopping kind of mentality where, you know, hey, I found you, you're really great. You know, you're an eight out of 10, but there's someone over there who might be an 8.1 out of 10. Ditch you and try this next thing. And, you know, you, you can kind of get spoiled by the number of options and think that there's always going to be a better choice. In your opening remarks, you mentioned uh, being selfish in relationships. What what you mean by that and, and how to uh, both preserve and, and achieve personal growth within a relationship. We have this overly romantic notion that the key to relationship success is to be completely selfless and give ourselves completely up to our, our partner, right? And, and just kind of step back and let, let our partner take hold. Um, the problem is that the research doesn't show that that's the case, right? The, the research actually shows that when we engage in self-sacrifice, it's worse for our relationship. Our partner doesn't necessarily appreciate it um, and the relationship outcomes aren't that great. And so we need to use our relationships as a way to become a better person. And so by if we're constantly stepping back and not, looking for things to foster and grow our sense of self, we're missing out on a key source of self-growth that we need to sustain ourselves. Sacrifice is kind of an interesting thing in relationships because the research shows that when we make sacrifices for our partner, um, we become more committed, right? And that that sounds good. We have a stronger bond. The problem is we're not necessarily happier and we're not necessarily closer. So we have this stronger bond to someone that we're not necessarily happier with. In in your book, you talk about 
uh, relationships where one of the partners um, goes out of town during the week. And so there's a significant distance uh, between uh, the, the two partners. And in those relationships, you mentioned that um, sometimes it makes the heart grow dearer and the relationship works out even better. One of the interesting aspects about this COVID situation is that many people are now working from home um, and they've quadrupled down on the amount of time they spend with their partner or in close proximity. How should we think about this change in behavior as it affects relationships? Yeah, I mean, it's been one of the big predictions about the pandemic that has ended up to be completely wrong. Um, and that is, you know, early, you know, March of 2020, the big prediction was, oh my gosh, we're going to be quarantining with our spouses. So the divorce rate is going to skyrocket. The reason why long distance relationships are strong is because those relationships have to focus on good communication. Um, and it's not as much about the physical, passionate love kinds of aspects. One of the things that the pandemic did for us, you know, for, for those of us in good relationships, is it gave us more of an opportunity to spend time with someone who's likely our best friend. And so what could be better than spending time with your best friend? Now, you might argue a little bit more, but arguing in and of itself isn't necessarily bad for relationships. It, that's communication, right? You're, you're helping to you know, advocate for your own point of view and, and better understand your partner's point of view. And so you're going to have those little points of friction. But the research also shows that those little points of friction are much better than ignoring them, which is much easier to do when you not see your partner all the time, and then allowing them to accumulate and then eventually blow up. Obviously, in life, um, in any relationship, there's going to be trouble, and it's important how we deal with it. And I think the more similar we are in our backgrounds, the better, because when we see that curveball, we could say, oh, you know, how, what are we going to need to do here? And at least we agree on a common understanding. Um, how should we work together to face the troubles of life? I think that last point is you, you nailed it, right? It, it needs to be anytime you and your partner have a problem, there's some point of conflict, you need to think of it as not me versus you, right? You know, arguments shouldn't be about confrontations and who's the winner. Instead, it needs to be you and me versus the problem. And so the problem might be a misunderstanding. It might be, you know, some sort of um, difference of opinions. And so it's, it's you and I versus the problem. Every time we have an argument or some sort of conflict, we have an opportunity to grow closer as a couple. Because once we kind of travel over that ground and, and go along that journey and, and kind of puzzle it out together, our relationship should be stronger as a result. Uh, now, that isn't how most people think about conflict, right? I mean, the number of times that people will mention to me something along the lines of like, hey, I know I have a good relationship because my partner and I, we never fight. It's a bad sign um, because if you're not having conflict with your partner, it means you're, you're, somebody is actively trying to avoid it. Um, and a lot of times the, what the research shows is that the couples who believe conflict is a bad sign they actually have worse relationships. And the people that believe arguing shouldn't be tolerated, they're less satisfied, they're more aggressive with their partner, right? And so as much as you're trying to save the relationship by not fighting, you're actually creating a much more dangerous situation because you're allowing these 10 little things, which if you had dealt with each of them as they came up and you know kept the small problems small, wouldn't be any threat to your relationship. But if you let those 10 things accumulate over time, that 
create this potential for a major fight that could threaten your relationship. In the book, you mentioned that um, Barack and Michelle Obama went to marriage counseling, that they have a great marriage, but um, like all great marriages, there's friction and sometimes you need a third party to come in and help. Um, what do you think the role is of counseling to improve marriages? And why do you think that the Obamas going to marriage counseling is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness? They seem to be very supportive of each other and enjoy each other's company. Um, and so the fact that they made it known that they went to counseling, I, I think is one of the ultimate signs of strength because it just shows that relationships aren't perfect. And so to learn that relationships take work is a really important message to get out to people because, you know, it's like I said in my opening, people spend very little time learning about relationships. You know, we learn a lot of things kind of, you know, accidentally by the relationships we see. I think counseling with any third party objective opinion from, from somebody who's not, you know, immediately involved in your relationship helps give you um, some new insight and, and see things a little bit more clearly. In, the, in your opening remarks, you mentioned that there's inertia uh, in relationships, especially as it relates to breakups. Um, you have so much invested in it. You don't have, you're going to be alone at least for a period of time. How do you evaluate inertia, um, the uncertainty of the future, that a rela another relationship will be better or worse? Wow, I mean, that's uh, probably the million-dollar question, right? It, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, people, when they're thinking about breakups, spend a lot of time deliberating over it. Um, a lot of it is, you know, the simplest way is basically when, you know, look at how many good things are in your relationship and look at how many bad things there are. And you should have a preponderance of good and very few bad. Right, and so if you have a lot of bad things in your relationship, that's that's a problem. Um, you can start looking at other people's relationships. One of the best ways to get some insight into your relationship is to ask a friend, uh, particularly females. If you ask your female best friend, females best friends have the most insight into what's really going on in a relationship. Um, and when it comes to making predictions about the future our friends are much better than we are at knowing what's actually going to happen. Um, and in fact, the research shows even our mom has a, has a better sense of, of what's going to happen. Spend more time learning about what makes for good relationships. When you learn about you know, what makes for good, strong, healthy relationships and what makes for problematic, unhealthy, abusive relationships, where do you see your relationship? I think people need to be a little bit quicker to break up than they are. Um, because we, we tend to think that our relationship breakups are going to be worse than they actually are. And, and there's research to support that as well. We end each session on a note of optimism. Um, what are you optimistic about as it relates to your subject, um, how to improve and have great relationships? I am optimistic because I think the pandemic really showed just how important relationships are. Those really deep, meaningful romantic relationships with a partner who's our best friend that, you know, when you're quarantined or you need somebody to rely on, having that person there to be your rock, someone to rely on, someone to help out, someone to spend time with, someone to enjoy 
that I think that this experience over the last 18 plus months has really opened our eyes to seeing, seeing just how important those relationships are. I think it's going to help people see relationships as less disposable, a little bit less of that relationship shopping mentality on, on online dating. So I'm really hoping that this sort of helps usher us into somewhat of a golden age of relationships where we really start focusing on you know what it takes to have those good, strong relationships that we all deserve. Gary, thank you so much. All right, that ends uh, today's session. I want to make a plug for our next week. Uh, our first speaker on September 19th, Sunday, will be uh, Jonathan Zimmerman, who is the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's also the author of Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. Jonathan will tell us about the failures uh, in universities since the beginning of time and the failure of various teaching reforms. Our second speaker is Patrick Allett, who is a professor of U.S. history at Emory. He is also the author of I'm the Teacher, You're the Student, a Semester in the University Classroom. He will discuss what our best university professors do right and what we can all learn from their success. Our final speaker will be Kenny Zhu, who is the president of Color Us United and the author of An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Kenny opposes racial discrimination of all kinds and encourages that admissions to universities be race-blind. Kenny will explain how the current admissions process discriminates against Asian Americans. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them at our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you can disconnect now. Goodbye.